I hope you are enjoying catechetical preaching. I sincerely am enjoying writing catechetical sermons for you, uh, sermons based upon the Baptist catechism. I hope that you can see the benefit of it. I was raised in a tradition, as were most of you, that taught it's important for ministers to teach the Word of God, but to go only verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. That is what I do on the Lord's Day in the morning. And I think it is right that we do that in the morning service, to simply study through books of the Bible. That has a certain benefit. But I hope that you could also see the benefit, the value, the validity of taking this approach as well with the Scriptures. And that is uh, to not necessarily teach verse by verse through a book of the Bible, but to draw out uh, the major themes and doctrines that are contained within Holy Scripture and to present them in a systematic manner so that the people of God might know the truth. Uh, it is important that doctrine be taught, uh, that it be taught systematically. I, I wish that you would think back to uh, the early days of, of your childhood uh, or uh, the, the early days of your faith in Christ. Um, wouldn't it have been valuable to you to have this sort of systematic instruction? Maybe some of you are just starting in your walk with Christ now and you say, hey, I'm getting it from the beginning. Wonderful for you. But for some, they did not receive systematic instruction like this. So it took a very long time to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. But here that is what we're doing on the Lord's Day evening. We're putting the pieces of the puzzle together so that when you read the pages of Holy Scripture, you're able to discern what it is that you're reading. Of course, we must be sure that what we are saying here is biblical. But we do believe that it is biblical, that our catechism provides a wonderful and rather basic summary of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And so I do pray that you see the value of this. I pray that you continue to come on the Lord's Day evening and that you encourage others to come with you. I think it is important for us to have our children present to hear this teaching. It is so foundational. Tonight we will be considering Baptist Catechism number 44, which asks, What is the duty which God requireth of man? And I'd like for you to repeat the answer after me, as is our custom. The duty which God requires of man is obedience to His revealed will. Very brief uh, answer uh, this week. Uh, if you're trying to memorize the catechism, you'll, you'll see that you'll have an easier time uh, this week at memorizing this, this question and, and answer. Uh, very, very simple, but... Very important, very profound. And the scripture reading for this evening comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. If you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll, you'll know that for a long time, the preacher, as he is called, tells us all about the vanity of life, how empty and meaningless life is. All of the various things that we pursue in this life are vain. They are empty. And you get into this book and you're wondering, why is this in the Bible? This is a real downer of a book. Life is meaningless. Life is vain. Um, but what is the point that the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is making? Well, he brings it all home at the very end of the book in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. He says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And so here at the very end of the book we see what his point is. That all of the pursuits that that we run after here in this life, they are empty and vain if we do not pursue them to the glory of God, through faith in God, and, and with the intent to obey His commandments. And so this is what gives life meaning. Fear God 
and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, the preacher says. From time to time, I do like to take a step back from the catechism to consider where we have been and where we are going to gain a better appreciation for the doctrine that is being taught in a particular question and answer. Let us not forget that the Catechism is seeking to teach the faith through the use of a series of questions and answers. The Catechism does not teach everything that the Bible teaches. Instead, it provides a summary of the core teachings of Holy Scripture. And to say it differently, our Catechism proclaims the Gospel. It truly does. Our Catechism proclaims the Gospel. And as we teach the Catechism to our children, we must emphasize this. We must always bring the Gospel of Jesus Christ to the forefront as we work our way through Uh, this catechism and use it as a tool to teach our children the faith. We are considering question 44 this evening. In the previous questions we have learned a lot of things. We have learned about God and His Holy Word. We have considered the decrees of God and the execution of His decrees and the works of creation and providence. We have learned about man, man's fall into sin and the miseries of man's sin. We have also learned about God's grace. He did not leave mankind to perish in their sin but has provided a Redeemer, Christ the Lord. A number of questions and answers taught us about Christ. We considered His person. Uh, What was He? We considered His work. What did He accomplish? We have learned a lot about Christ, His finished work, and how it is that His finished work is applied to sinners to this present day. So how do we come to benefit from what Christ did so long ago today? Presently, And we learned all about that with the help of our catechism. Most recently we have been considering the benefits that those who have faith in Christ enjoy in this life, in death and at the resurrection. In this life believers enjoy justification, adoption and sanctification along with the many benefits that accompany or flow from these. This should sound very familiar to you. At death believers are made perfect in soul and immediately enjoy the blessed presence of God. And at the resurrection the bodies of believers will be reunited to their souls. They will then be openly acquitted and will enter into glory. That is to say, the new heavens and the new earth which Christ has earned. All of that is positive. We considered the benefits that those in Christ Jesus enjoy in this life at death and at the resurrection. All of that is positive. But the last two questions, the last two questions present to us the benefits that belong to those in Christ Jesus, but they present them in a fairly negative way. Because there, in the last two questions, we have pondered what shall be done to the wicked at the day, at death, and, and at the resurrection. And both answers spoke of the torments of hell. I say that the benefits of, that, that belong to those who are in Christ are in questions 42 and 43 negatively considered because these questions and answers remind us not of what we have been saved to, but of what we have been saved from. We have been rescued from the miseries of hell. Uh, I think you would agree with me that it is important to consider both of these things, not only what we have been saved to in Christ Jesus, but also what we have been saved from. And so you can see that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been presented to us already in questions 1 through 43 of our catechism. The gospel has been presented to us And it has been presented to us in a historical way. If you step back from the Catechism and look and say, what is is going on here? How is this thing structured? 
The Catechism has moved us to consider what the Bible teaches concerning God, His creation, the fall of man, salvation in Jesus Christ, and the consummation of all things at the resurrection. And so there is a kind of historical progress that we have, that we have made with the help of our Catechism God, creation, fall, redemption in Christ Jesus as it has been worked out in history. So, brothers and sisters, parents, you have had the opportunity to preach the gospel to your children in questions 1 through 43. We have been brought full circle, if you will, to consider the benefits that belong to those in Christ Jesus in life, at death, at the resurrection, also the miseries that we have been saved from. The good news of Jesus Christ is found here. And question 44, which we are considering this evening, marks the beginning of a new section in our catechism, it is a very large section which teaches us about the law of God. If you have your catechism with you, you can open up to question 44 and you can kind of track along with me and see what I'm saying. This question marks the beginning of a new section that focuses on the law of God. Question 44 asks, again, what is the duty which God requires of man? What does God require of us? And the answer is simple. The duty which God requireth of man is obedience to His revealed will. So here the concept of God revealing His will to us is presented to us. And here we are confronted with the fact that this is our duty. Not only the duty of the Christian, but of every, of every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. Question 45 then furthers the discussion. What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? And the answer is the rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. So here this terminology is introduced to us. God has revealed to us his law, his, his moral law. We'll talk all about that next week. And question 46 asks, where is the moral law summarily comprehended? Where is it summarized for us? We know that the moral law is revealed in nature dimly. But it is summarized for us most clearly in the Ten Commandments is what our catechism will teach us. And then question 47 presents us with that famous and helpful summary of the Ten Commandments. What is the summary of the Ten Commandments? To love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind and our neighbor as ourselves. That is a nice summary of the, the Ten Commandments. The first law pertaining to loving neighbor, uh, rather the first law pertaining to the love of God... Uh, corresponds to the first table of the law, and the second commandment regarding the love of neighbor corresponds to the second table of law of the law. And then questions 48 through 86. Did you hear that? It's a very long stretch in our catechism. 48 through 86. These questions and answers provide us with a kind of exposition of the Ten Commandments. It's a wonderfully rich portion of our catechism. Each of the Ten Commandments are considered and for each of the commandments, at least three questions are asked. Number one, which is the, let's say, first commandment? And then we recite the first commandment. And then after that, another question is devoted to the first commandment. Let's say, what is required in the first commandment? And then we talk about what the first commandment requires of us. What does it require us to do? And then another question will be devoted to the first commandment. What is forbidden in the first commandment? In other words, what does the first commandment tell us not to do? And this pattern is repeated for every one of the Ten Commandments, so that by the time we come to question 87, we should have a very good understanding of what it is that God requires of us. What does God require of us? Obedience to His revealed will. What has He revealed? His moral law. Where is that moral law 
summarized for us? Well, it is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. And the essence of the Ten Commandments is to love God with all that we are and our neighbor as ourselves. But we will memorize the Ten Commandments. We will learn about what the Ten Commandments require of us. We will also learn about what the Ten Commandments forbid. It's a wonderful exposition of God's law. So, over a third of our catechism is devoted to understanding God's moral law as summarized in the Ten Commandments. Why such an emphasis upon the Ten Commandments? Why such an emphasis? And I will say this as a kind of aside. Most of us came out of a tradition that did not preach very often from the Old Testament, nor make much mention of the law of God, given that that was a dispensational kind of tradition that we came out of. Uh, But within the Reformed tradition, we see that there is, in fact, a true appreciation for the Old Testament Scriptures, a true appreciation for the law of God. There is this belief that the law of God is still very much important and useful to the Christian. So, why such an emphasis upon the Ten Commandments? I'll mention two reasons for it. One, so that believers might know how God expects them to live. So, there is this use of the law that we are to To recognize the Ten Commandments, God's moral law revealed in Scripture, instructs us as to how we are to live. The moral law of God is a light to our feet. God's law reveals how we should walk in this world. And I do pray that we would grow in our understanding of the law as we consider each commandment, what it requires and what it forbids. May the prayer of Psalm 119 be ours. Have you ever read Psalm 119? Longest chapter in the Bible, I think, right? And the whole thing, it's very repetitive, but it's beautiful. It's just declaring how precious God's law is. The word law is not used every time. Sometimes it is commandments or precepts or some other other term. But it's all referring to God's law. And things like this are said throughout Psalm 119. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise, that you may be feared. This should be the prayer of every Christian. This should be the prayer of every Christian, that we would learn to live according to God's law, for His glory and for our good. Our confession speaks to the benefits of the law for the believer in chapter 19, paragraph 6. And I want to read it to you. I've probably read this paragraph to you before. I love this paragraph. It is so helpful. What what does the law do for the believer? What benefit does the law provide for the one who is in Christ? Listen carefully to what our confession says in chapter 19, paragraph 6. It says, Although true believers... Be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned. Did you hear that? Brothers and sisters, can you be saved by the keeping of the law? No. We are not legalists, are we? We know that the law cannot save us. In fact, it it condemns us. It shows us that we are lawbreakers. Yet, it is of great use to them, that is to believers, as well as to others, In that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and of their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred of sin, 
together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and of the perfection of His obedience. So the law may have been used to bring us to Christ at the beginning. But even as we are in Christ Jesus, when we look at the law, we, we, we stand and, and we say, Oh, I understand even more than I did at the start how much I needed Christ Jesus. This law condemns me. I have violated it in thought, word, and deed. Thank you, Lord, for sending the Redeemer. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions, in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve, and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse and an alloyed rigor thereof. The promises of it likewise show them God's approbation of obedience, His his approval of obedience, and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, though not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. It's not functioning as a covenant of works. So as man's doing good and refraining from evil. For the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. In other words, we are under grace. We are under the covenant of grace and we are saved by grace alone. But that does not mean that the law is not important to us. Even under the covenant of grace, the law of God performs a very important function. It shows us how we are to live. It shows us the sins that remain so that we might turn from them. It shows us our sins so that we gain even a greater appreciation for our Redeemer. It shows us what our sins actually deserve so that we might walk with a kind of holy reverence before the Lord, trembling at the thought of falling into sin, for the wages of sin is truly death. This is a very beautiful statement in LBC 19.6 and how important it is for the believers to know God's law, not to be saved by the keeping of it, we are saved by grace alone through faith, but so that we might walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and gain an even better appreciation for Christ who kept the law on our behalf and has saved us from the curse of the law which is owed to us because of our sin. But there is another reason why our catechism spends so much time teaching God's law. And that is so that the law might prepare the hearts of sinners to hear and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I've just said that the law is useful to the believer, and for the reasons that I've just mentioned, it certainly is useful for the believer, but it is also useful for the non-believer, for the unregenerate one, in that it prepares hearts to hear and to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that law and gospel go together, law and gospel work together. The law is not only useful to the believer, it is also useful when evangelizing those who do not yet believe. In evangelism, the law and the gospel work together, friends. We must realize this. The law reveals that we are guilty sinners, and the gospel is the good news that a Savior has been provided for us, Christ Jesus our Lord. He has kept the law on our behalf, suffered and died in our place, as if He were guilty, and He is raised from the dead in victory. And you will notice that this is, in fact, where our catechism goes. After spending a long time teaching the Ten Commandments, we will come to question 87, which will ask this, Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? Do you see where our catechism goes with this? Here are the commandments of God. Christian, learn to live according to God's law. Live in a way that is pleasing to Him. But the the purpose seems to be evangelism here. The gospel is going to be presented. You can see where our catechism is going. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And if we are at all sober, if we are at all aware of our, our sin, 
we will say what our catechism says, No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but daily break them in thought, in word, in deed. There's that familiar refrain that we use in the confession of our sins and our public worship. We break them in thought, in word, in deed. Question 88 asks, Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? And our catechism does acknowledge that some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. So some sins are more heinous than others. That is true. Some sins carry with them uh, harsher consequences than others. That is true. But then question 9 asks, what does every sin deserve? The extremely heinous sins and the less heinous sins, what do they all deserve? Here is the answer. Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and in that which is to come. And so this is all bad news, friends. But the bad news that the law brings is essential if we are to comprehend the good news that Jesus brings. We must know the bad news if we are to truly appreciate the good news. And question 90 will finally bring us good news saying, What does God require of us that we may escape His wrath and curse due to us for sin? Is there a way of escape? Is there a way of escape? We know that there is, for God has determined to provide a Redeemer for us. But what does God require of us that we may escape His wrath and curse due to us for sin? And here is the Gospel. To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance unto life with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. So what is, what is required of us to be saved, to escape His wrath and cursed, curse? It is faith in Christ that is required of us. It is through faith in Christ that we come to have redemption. Again, this is the gospel. Now, I cannot take any more time to flesh this out, but I think it is very interesting how the gospel is presented in our catechism twice, but in two different ways. Questions 1 through 43 take a history of redemption approach, telling us about the creation, fall, and redemption in Christ Jesus. And some very foundational things are communicated there to us in questions 1 through 43, which we have just considered. But questions 44 through 90 take a law-gospel approach. They take a law-gospel approach. We learn about God's law. The law reveals our sin and our tremendous need. And then the gospel comes in at just the right time to hold forth the Savior to us. And so the two sections, I think, complement one another beautifully. Our catechism preaches and teaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, why have I taken this big picture view of the Catechism today? Why have I done this? In part, it is to prepare you for a rather long consideration of the moral law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments. We are going to dive deep into the law of God, but I, I need for you to always keep the Gospel in view. I need you to understand where this is going. We are to learn the law of God so that we might walk in a manner that is worthy before the Lord as believers, but also we must realize that the Catechism is using the law in order to prepare the hearts of those who do not yet believe to hear the Gospel. The law is being used to prepare their hearts so that they might see 
that indeed they are in need of a Savior, for they should realize that they have violated this law in thought, word, and deed. Not only have they done what the law forbids, but they have failed to do what it requires. And so, the law is good, brothers and sisters. That is what I want you to see. The law is good. This is what Paul taught, saying, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That is Romans 7.12. And in another place he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That should sound very familiar to you, for it is 1 Timothy 1.8. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. The implication is that the law is bad if we use it unlawfully. In other words, if we use it not in the way that it was intended. So Paul is exhorting us, Timothy here, the Ephesians, us, to use the law, but to use it lawfully. In other words, in the way that it is intended to be used, as a light for the path of believers, and also in order to prepare sinners to hear the gospel, so that they might turn from their sin and trust in Him alone for life eternal. The law is good. It is useful to restrain evil in the world generally. It is useful to the believer in many ways, one of them being to show them how they are to walk worthily. And it is useful to those who do not yet believe as it shows men their sin and the punishment they deserve, preparing them to hear, understand, and receive the gospel should the Lord give them His grace. This large section which teaches about the law of God begins with a very simple but important question. What is the duty which God requireth of man? I want you to think about that question. It assumes a lot. But what it assumes has been established earlier in the Catechism. This question that we are considering this evening assumes that there is a God. It assumes that God has authority over man. And that man owes God something. Indeed, this is all true. Man is indebted to God because God is man's creator and he is man's sustainer. I want for you to think of how arrogant we are as the human race to live in God's world and to fail to give God the honor that is due to Him. As I was writing this sermon, I, I just stopped here and I, I thought about this. The way the vast majority of the human race goes on living in this world and they don't give a thought to God at all. They live not for His glory, but for their own. They live not for His pleasure, but their own pleasure. They breathe God's air. They drink God's water. They look up at God's stars. They feel the warmth of God's sun. They enjoy relationships with God's people. They eat the food that God has provided for them. And they do it all and give no glory to God at all. They fail to give Him Thanks, but they simply assume that they themselves have created themselves, they sustain themselves, they live for their own glory, they live for their own pleasure. This is, this is awful, if you're really to take a step back and think about it. This is, this is a heinous sin. <laughs> I understand that there are some sins that are more heinous than others, but this, this propensity of man to live in God's world and to, to not give Him the glory or honor is, is, is terrible. It is terrible. What is the duty which God requireth of man? The question assumes a lot. The question is simple, but the question is profound. And the answer is that the duty which God requireth of man is obedience to His revealed will. As God's creatures, we owe Him obedience. And I might say to you as, as Christians, as believers, how much more so should we obey our God now that He is our Redeemer? 
He is not only our Creator, He is our Redeemer. And so we should serve Him with all that we are out of gratitude for the mercy and grace that He has shown to us. But all of God's creatures owe Him obedience because He is their God, He is their Maker, and they are His creatures. And God has not left us to wonder what it is that we are to do or not do. To the contrary, He has revealed His will to us, this catechism question teaches. God, the Creator of heaven and earth, has revealed Himself to us. God is a God who speaks. Think of that. It could be that God just created the world and left us to wander about in the darkness, but we serve a God who has determined to reveal Himself to us. He has revealed who He is. He has revealed something of His plans and purposes. He has revealed His will. That is to say, He has given us His law. This He even did for Adam and Eve in the garden before sin entered into the world. Now, there is a secret or hidden will of God. We may speak of the will of God in this way. There is a secret or hidden will of God. What is God's will for tomorrow? In other words, what will happen tomorrow? Well, we don't know for sure. God knows And He has determined that certain things will happen tomorrow. But from our perspective, all of that is mysterious. It is mysterious to us, for God has not revealed the specifics of His plans for tomorrow. We come to know His secret will after it is accomplished. God's secret will is not something that we can obey. It is something that we will come to experience. But there is also a revealed will of God. And this is what God desires from us. It is what He has commanded us to do, and we are to live in obedience to that. God has revealed His will to us. What is the duty which God requireth of man? Answer the duty which God requireth of man is obedience to His revealed will. The passage that we read from at the end of Ecclesiastes speaks of God's revealed will. I'll read it again. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is what gives life meaning. This is what makes life significant. This is what gives lasting value to life. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In other words, what should be the focus of our life? What will be most rewarding and of lasting significance? Everything that we do in this life is meaningless and vain if we do not fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Have you ever noticed how much energy... We tend to spend trying to figure out God's hidden will. We worry and we fret about tomorrow. How will I pay the bills? Um, Who will I marry? I don't worry about that. Some of the younger people do. Um, will Will I fall ill? When will I die? What will the circumstances be? We spend so much energy worrying about and trying to figure out God's hidden will, and it's impossible. What are we to devote our energies to, brothers and sisters? Obeying God's revealed will today. And what are we to do in regard to tomorrow? We're to trust the Lord. We're to trust the Lord knowing that He cares for us. We're strange creatures, aren't we? We devote all of our energies, it seems. We're consumed by worry concerning the future, trying to figure out plans and purposes, all of that. And God says, you know, today's troubles are sufficient. Deal with today. Obey Him today. 
Tomorrow will take care of itself, even more biblically. God will take care of you tomorrow. He will provide for your every need in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you honor God with reverential and loving fear? And are you striving to keep His commandments? This is what you are called to do in Christ Jesus. And if you are not in Christ Jesus, if you have not been washed in His blood and pardoned by Him, I do pray that you begin to see the problem even now. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep His commandments, and this we do not do. This we have failed to do in our natural condition. We have failed to give God the glory that is due His name, and we have indeed violated His law and thought, word indeed we have come short of His will for us. We are found wanting. We stand guilty before Him, and in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ is that Savior. Christ did perfectly fear God and keep His commandments. He was guiltless, therefore, but He died the death of a guilty sinner. This He did so that all who believe in Him will not perish, but have life everlasting. And so we return, brothers and sisters, to that question that was asked at the very beginning, question 44 of our Catechism. What is the duty which God requires of man? The duty which God requires of man is obedience to His revealed will. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, for those in Christ Jesus, I do pray that you would help us to live in obedience to you. May no one do it in order to earn favor with you, for your favor is freely given. We are saved by grace alone, received through faith alone. But may we obey you out of a sense of gratitude for all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. May we love your law. May we be eager to keep it. May we see that there is life found in it. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Give us the strength that we need to keep your holy word. And for those not in Christ, I pray that you would draw them. Help them to see even now their tremendous need for a Savior. Help them to see that they stand before you even now guilty and deserving of your judgment. May they run, run to Christ and cling to Him, knowing that in Him... We have the forgiveness of sins and the hope of life everlasting. Work within our hearts and in our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.